Well, good morning, church family. Uh, before we jump into today's good news, I thought it'd be important just to acknowledge the heavy news that we've all been dealing with probably over the past 24 hours. I probably like you on Friday night was kind of watching the news and watching the weather, kind of anticipating what the storms might look like if they touched down close to where I live. And I'm grateful this morning that they didn't, but we all know the harsh reality is that it did touch down in lots of places, all the way from Arkansas through even some places here in Indiana and the carnage, the destruction, the chaos, all that has just been graphically presented to us um, ever since. And so our hearts are heavy this morning uh, because we know there are people who lost their life yesterday morning. There are people who woke up who uh, won't be able to see their loved ones again. We also recognize that people's families, businesses and livelihood and all that is uh, just kind of in a crazy state this morning. So even though it feels maybe so far away, um, it's actually really close and personal. There are people in our congregation who lost property, who have loved ones who live in one of these cities, especially those close. Um, So we know uh, all ranges of emotions are present today. There's that emotion that's like in awe of a God who can create such a storm that twists trees and uproots big honking trees. And just like you watch that and go, wow, that's powerful. And yet we also wrestle and try to reconcile the fact that he let that happen to people who lost their life and all the chaos that's in, around that. And I don't really know how to reconcile those things. And that's why I'm not God, but I choose uh, faith in these moments. I choose to worship a God who's big enough for both to worship him because he is capable and powerful and also that he's present when things happen like this in our life. He's not aloof, and I trust him. His ways are not my ways. Um, The way that he looks at the world and his plans are often different than mine, and I have a choice to resent that or to trust that. I would just encourage you uh, to join me in choosing to trust that. And we want to respond as a community of faith. And the first response we have is to pray, to ask God to bring comfort and healing and and peace and wisdom to all those who are dealing with this much closer than we are today. We also wanted to let you know that as a church family, we have uh, plans that we're making to be able to respond. One of the things that we're really committed to here at Crossroads is to respond through the local church. And so we're identifying partners that we have in those communities that we can bless and infuse with people or funds or whatever they need so that they can be Jesus in a very tangible way in this moment. Instead of just loading up our cars and running down there and being there for a couple days and poof, back here, uh, we want to make a long-term investment and, and to empower the people who are our Christ followers in those communities. And so I'm gonna ask you to join me in prayer right now. And then I just wanted you to know we'll communicate you know, uh, well in how you can participate in ways to respond in this moment. So let's pray together. God, thank you for being God. Uh, we do recognize and even admire your power. And yet we also, Lord, are seeking to trust you and, and to acknowledge that things like this hurt. And that we know there are people hurting this morning, especially in Kentucky, but also Tennessee and Missouri and Arkansas. God, our prayer is that you would mobilize your people in those communities with hope to be able to live and love like Jesus in a moment like this with faith and with uh, compassion. And God, we want to uh, be your hands and feet in this moment as well. 
We're asking for those that have lost loved ones that you would provide them comfort and peace. God, I pray for those who are like walking and sifting through all their belongings, looking for something to salvage, Lord, that you would just overwhelm them right now with your grace and your mercy. God, I pray that you give wisdom to the local and national and state level officials who are responding to these situations. God, I pray that you would mobilize your church like never before so that we could bring heaven to earth even in moments where the earthiness of this stings. So Lord, we trust you. We seek your plan. We choose to surrender to it. God, we pray that even in the midst of tragedy like this, there would be glimmers of hope and lots of good news that can come from it. We pray that through Christ's name. Amen. One year as a way to celebrate the Christmas season, the church I grew up in where my dad was a pastor decided that they would offer a living nativity to the community, which meant people of the congregation would commit one evening to show up and portray some members or the part of the cast of the nativity. Like some people would dress up in costumes, be Mary and Joseph, some shepherds, some angels, some wise men. And so uh, this was a pretty cool moment for our church. Uh, lots of people in the community showed up and uh, got to pet live animals and see the nativity being portrayed and uh, get some hot chocolate. My family growing up, we decided we would take our turn. And so we weren't the most biblically accurate portrayal of the nativity that night. First of all, my mom and dad, who were well in their late 40s at this point, portrayed Mary and Joseph, who were probably much younger than them in that moment. Uh, my little brother, who was about five years old, was a shepherd. And then we had the three wise men, or let's just say two wise guys and a wise lady. My older brother, my older sister, and I were the magi that night. And like I said, we weren't the most biblically accurate. Our hearts weren't even in the right place at times, because it was really cold that night. And uh, we really didn't want to be there at moments, but we did our three-hour shift. And it is one of those precious memories. I look back on the Christmas season growing up and think, that's a cool, cool deal. The whole intent of it was just to really keep the focus on the reason for the season, right? The good news that came in this baby that was born, uh, Jesus, you know, Christ the Savior. And here this season here at Crossroads, while we don't have a live nativity out front, we're really trying to keep our focus on the same. And that is that there is good news for all people that came when Jesus was born in our world. Over the past couple of weeks, we've just looked at some moments that are recorded by Luke in his gospel. And one of those was the angel showing up to an older couple that probably more reflect my parents at this stage in their life, in their 70s and 80s, who all their life wanted to be uh, parents. And God showed up through the angel to Zachariah and Elizabeth with good news. You're going to have a baby. And that baby was born. We know that baby as the forerunner to the Messiah. His name is John the Baptist. Last week, Andy Tier took us through this moment where the good news showed up to Mary, this young teenage girl who was a virgin, yet the angel gave her some good news of great joy that would be for all people and that she was going to have a baby and that that baby would be named Jesus. He would be the Savior, the Messiah. In fact, what the angel said about this child was this, he'll be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he'll reign over Jacob's descendant forever. His kingdom will never end. The Holy One to be born will be called the son of God. Well, today we get to that moment where this good news actually happened. I have been able to have a front row seat to three births in my life, all three of my kids. 
And if I was getting to choose the day that our firstborn would have been born, it wouldn't have been on a Sunday because as a pastor, that's the worst day you could have a baby, right? It's also the worst day when your father and your wife's father are pastors too. We were all making a mad dash to St. Mary's Hospital here in Evansville to watch this baby be born, right? And I'm a little jealous of couples now who get to choose the date. They put it on the calendar and they know it well in advance that that's going to be the day. I would have not picked Sunday if I had that privilege, right? Well, let's look and see at the arrival of this baby being born to Mary. We're going to look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Read along with me if you have a copy of the Bible. Luke says this, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Luke does a great job of historically placing Jesus' birth. He begins by identifying this person named Caesar Augustus, who was the Roman emperor reigning from about 27 BC all the way to 14 AD. His original name was actually Gaius Octavius. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. He was the Caesar after Julius Caesar. He should have been known as Octavius Caesar, but he was a very prideful, arrogant person. He wanted to be known as the greatest Roman ruler ever. So he dropped the Octavius part of his name and he added Augustus, which means majesty. It was a name of divinity. It was basically saying of the gods or Caesar God. And he really lived up to his self-appointed name. Caesar Augustus thought that since he was a god, he should be lavished with luxury and that luxury should come at the price of the subjects in his kingdom. And so what he did is he issued a census to be taken. One, so he would know how many people were part of his kingdom and two, so he'd know how much money he could get from them. And so his political announcement probably read, read my lips, lots of new taxes, right? He decreed that the census should be taken and he didn't care about how much a heavy tax would place a financial burden on the people. And he didn't care that this method of of registration would cause families to have to travel long distances or to put on them just to uproot their family or even have to quit their jobs. He didn't really care if they were sick, old, or pregnant at the time. Luke also mentions this person named Quirinius. Quirinius was known as a military leader, but also a governor. He served two different terms, and in both terms, he was part of a census. This first one recorded in Luke 2, and a second one that's recorded in Acts chapter 5 by the same person, Luke, right? Just as a historical reference, this mentioning of Uh, Caesar Augustus and Quirinius, as well as coupled with Matthew, referencing Herod the Great, all that put together is why we believe that Jesus was born actually in 4 BC and not at zero. 
If that's mind-blowing to you and that just kind of dashes all the things that you've ever believed about Christmas, well, maybe let me give you a few more. We don't know for a fact that Mary traveled to Bethlehem on a donkey. It very well could have been, but we don't know that for sure. And we are quite sure that the wise men or the Magi never visited Bethlehem's stable. They probably showed up two years later and didn't find a, a baby infant. They probably found a little toddler named Jesus. And now... Uh, That's one of the reasons we're talking to Epworth United Methodist Church about placing the wise men from our nativity in their front yard. So we can kind of make sure to keep that biblically accurate, but we'll get to that in a little bit. No, Joseph, what we do know for a fact is this. Joseph obeyed the instructions and returned to his hometown of Bethlehem to take part in the census. What looked like the musing of a pagan dictator was actually the fulfillment of prophecy and the promised Messiah. You know, I think it's important as we watch nations around us, as we think about the political leaders from whatever persuasion they find themselves here in our own country, as we watch like storms and all kinds of natural disasters, it's real easy to be uneasy. It's real easy to be like skeptical or cynical about the world around us. But I want to encourage you to have the confidence that David wrote about in Psalm chapter 2. This is what he says about some of the things around us being crazy and yet where our hope and strength comes from. David says this in Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break the chains and throw off the shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. You know, what might seem as an inconvenience or even an affront to the things of God might just be an opportunity and the means by which God is using to accomplish his plans. Joseph was not only from Bethlehem, but he was also from the house and lineage of King David. And both of those were prophecies about the coming Messiah. Mary traveled with Joseph. And not only was she expecting a child by now, she was already ready to deliver. And the trip from Nazareth in Galilee to Bethlehem in Judea was about 80 miles. I don't know how many of you women would be up for a road trip when you're this close to delivering a baby, especially if you had to walk or ride on some animal. And especially the good news is that your friends at the IRS were wanting you to take this trip so they could collect money from you. Sounds like a great time, right? Well, I'm sure by this point, Joseph is feeling like a really pretty good husband, right? And so let's continue to read what Luke records now in verse six. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Here's another point of clarity about the birth of Jesus. We don't actually know where Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We know that there was no room for them in the inn and that he was laid in a manger, but where was the manger? Most customs show that, you know, is maybe in a barn that's used to care for animals or house animals. Many people believe it could have been in a cave. That would have been more common in this part of the world in the first century. It could have been on the first level of a home where often guest rooms or animals were cared for and housed overnight. 
It could have been just in an open air courtyard, like outside of an inn. What we do know for a fact is that he was wrapped in cloths and laid in a manger. What we also know is that Jesus was born in poverty, obscurity, even rebuff and rejection. And all of that was according to God's plan. For the past couple of weeks, I've been listening to Christmas music as I've been on my morning run. And I, I love, I love a, a wide range of Christmas music. And one of the bands that I've listened to that has a song called How Many Kings, their band's called Down Here. It's a Canadian Christian rock band. Listen with the lyrics to some of their song here. He says, follow the star to a place unexpected. Would you believe after all we projected, a child in a manger, lowly and small, the weakest of all, unlikeliest hero, wrapped in his mother's shawl, just a child. Is this who we've waited for? Because how many kings stepped down from their thrones? How many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats have become the least for me? And how many gods have poured out their hearts to romance a world that has torn all apart? How many fathers gave up their sons for me? Only one did that for me. After all that was taking place in Jesus' birth, it was all according to God's plan. A virgin giving birth to a child, her firstborn, a son, born in Bethlehem of the lineage of David, wrapped in linen cloths, lying in a manger, given the name Jesus. This birth was good news. And the first to hear about it was really some unlikely characters. Look what Luke says next in verse eight. There were shepherds living out in their fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. When we hear the Christmas story, we often think of the shepherds as these cute little sons, maybe some daughters, dressed up in their dad's bathrobe, clean-shaven, innocent and pure, and just kind of going about their business. But, you know, shepherds were not somebody that everybody wanted their kid to grow up to be. By the time of the first century, shepherds were, were part of a despised occupation, While many of the leaders of Israel originally were from shepherding backgrounds, by this point, people were not looking upon shepherds with great respect. They were, shepherds were considered just dishonest vagabonds. They traveled from place to place using land that they didn't own, eating produce that they didn't pay for. They were viewed as unclean. They were not allowed to worship in the temple. And rabbis of this day instructed people not to buy wool or milk or lambs from shepherds because they were dishonest and untrustworthy. It was not only the lowliest of jobs, it was a very lonely job. A shepherd was an outcast because they they had to do their work outside of the city. They were often up all night caring for animals so that um, vultures or, or like people wouldn't steal or people wouldn't take advantage. Ravenous animals wouldn't destroy the flock. They were poor nobodies. They were distantly, social distance well before that was in vogue, right? And they were looked down upon. They represent the outcasts and the sinners that Jesus actually came for. And God 
sends an angel to them to tell them the good news. And I don't think it's any accident that they were the first recipients of this good news. I also think it's still funny that they are terrified by the angel and what the angel says to them is, do not be afraid. That catches me every time. Regardless of their reputation, they had a noble task. In fact, these shepherds were more than likely caring for animals outside of Bethlehem that would have been used in worship in Jerusalem at the temple, especially at Passover. Isn't that some really cool significance? The angel points out the significance of this baby being born for such a purpose. The angel said, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He's the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Did you catch all three of those titles the angel gave to Jesus? Savior, Messiah, Lord. It's the only time those three titles are used in one Bible verse. In fact, the angel is pointing out the true identity of Jesus. This baby is Savior. He will save people from their sins. He's Messiah. He's the one promised by God, the anointed one. He also is the Lord. He is God. He's maker of all. He's ruler of all. Not only is this the true identity of Jesus, it's also the good news, the gospel. The angel stresses that this good news is for all people. It's no coincidence this good news is given first to the shepherds because they were certainly considered less likely to succeed. And they were also the greatest in need of a savior. They were unrighteous. They were outcasts of society, but they were the first to receive the good news that they had a savior. It was for them and it was for all people. And the promise from God of this good news, as well as many other moments in scripture, is confirmed by a sign. The baby would be wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, in the ancient world, it was normal to wrap a baby in strips of cloth. In fact, they would do it mummy style, legs and arms straight. And they thought that that would bring health or strength to the child as it grew. That was normal to see a baby wrapped in strips of cloth. But it was not normal, it was unique to find a baby in a feeding trough. The shepherds would have been familiar with every watering hole and every feeding trough in the town of Bethlehem. They had taken their flocks into this town many times to feed and water them. And so as they went to Bethlehem that night, they knew where to look. They knew where all the feeding troughs were. What they were looking for was the one that had a baby in it, right? And when they found that baby in the manger, it was just like the angel said it would be. Look at verse 15, what Luke records about the shepherds. They hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. These men were changed by what they had been told and experienced. It was the good news. They shared what they had been seen, what they had seen and what they heard with everyone. And all who heard it were amazed. They went back to their jobs different. They were now glorifying and praising God. And that was much different than the conversation had been around the fire at night before. 
they had experienced the good news. Though once they were an outcast, now they were a welcomed person in the kingdom of God. There's a little misinterpretation about this moment of these angels that joined the one angel and began to declare this good news with them about who they are and what they proclaim. Luke 2 records, suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace on whom his favor rests. Now, most Christmas cards are gonna have this one angel surrounded by like the backup choir, right? With a bunch of angelic beings with wings flittering, right? And they're all singing this one song together. But that's really not a good interpretation of what's happening here. This heavenly host is not a angel choir. It's actually an angel army. And they're not actually singing in this moment. They're actually chanting a battle cry that's filled with this good news. They're declaring God's sovereignty over heaven and earth and declaring peace has come to the world through the salvation that God is extending. The angels are chanting this good news. It's the gospel. God is making peace between himself and humankind through the birth of this baby named Jesus. He's Messiah, he's Savior, he's Lord. And everybody should take notice. It's in striking contrast to Caesar Augustus, who is best known for Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It's in contrast to him what Jesus is ushering in. And this is everlasting peace. Peace to everyone. Not necessarily to each person, but to only those who receive Jesus as Savior and receive the salvation that he offers. Only through Jesus can you have true and lasting peace with God, with yourself and with anyone else. Peace is available to anyone, but only to those who do God's will. In John 6, verse 29, Jesus makes this statement. It's actually said in third person. He says this, this is the will of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. He's the one. The will of God is that we believe in that one. And to each person who does believe, they are granted peace. This peace comes through salvation. And that is the good news for anyone who feels like an outcast, to anyone whose reputation precedes itself, to anyone who feels at odds with God, with others, or even with yourself, to anyone who feels like they're lost or afraid or hopeless or oppressed or even guilty, God offers peace. This is what Paul told the Romans, look what he says. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. You see, at just the right time, when we were all shepherds, well, you see the parallel here, right? While we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still shepherds, I mean, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? My friends, this is the good news. 
I think it's reflected in these modern day t-shirts, maybe bumper stickers and a, a mug at your Christian local bookstore, right? That says, no God, no peace. No God, no peace. See, the good news elicits peace and joy. We see how the shepherds responded to this good news. They returned rejoicing. See, joy is this inward state of happiness and contentment that bursts forth in rejoicing and praise when we realize that we are loved, that we've been rescued, that we are saved. The good news brings joy to those who feel forgotten like Zechariah and Elizabeth, who had lived faithfully but had trusted God in all their lives. It's It's good news to a person like this unexpected girl named Mary who was young and pure, minding her own business when God interrupted her life. And it's good news to those who were outcast, who are unrighteous in any society or time. See, God brushes away our doubts, our fears, our failures, and he brings good news of great joy for all people. I love the enthusiasm of the shepherds who hurry off to see for themselves this good news. I love their role in broadcasting this good news to every person they meet along the way. They are great examples of how to receive the good news, but also how to share it as well. And their inclusion in this birth narrative of Jesus declares that the good news is for everyone. For those who thought they were too old, for those who were thought they were too young, for anyone who thinks they're too far gone, for those who've been faithful yet feel forgotten, for the one who's innocent yet accused, for the one who's guilty and seems already judged by society. Just like the shepherds, when any one of us receives the good news with faith, it produces joy and worship. And we return to our everyday life just like the shepherds did, changed and courageously proclaiming the good news that we have heard and experienced. All throughout this past week, as I was putting this message together, I just had this overwhelming sense that somebody here today just needed to hear this good news, that God loves you, that he has a plan for your life. And regardless of the mess you've made of life or the many things you feel like you've done that deserves condemnation, God loves you and he offers you forgiveness. That's the good news. That Jesus was born for all of us, for those of us who feel so far removed from God or an outcast in any society, God reaches out first to us. He offers us salvation that brings peace and joy and everything else we could want in life through this baby that was born. That's the good news. And it just wasn't good news for then. It's good news now, and it's good news forever. If you wanna respond to that good news this morning, you can just simply meet me right up front here. One of our elders, some of our pastors will be right up front. We'd love to talk to you about how you can experience the good news that hopefully you've just heard. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for coming to us. God, all of us are like shepherds. We have all removed ourselves from your plan. We've all found ourselves out wandering in the fields at night. We've all found ourselves somewhat 
utterly hopeless at times, especially spiritually, without hope. And yet you reached out to us by wrapping yourself in human flesh and coming to our world, being born as a fulfillment of the prophecies that were spoken so long ago. And in that moment, brought such good news to those who were hearing it for the first time, seeing it with their own eyes, and then declaring it to the rest of us. God, my prayer is any person here today who feels alone, who feels rejected, that feels like an outcast, that, that feels like a failure, Lord, maybe once in their entire life now, they would understand that this good news is for them, that you love them, you have a plan for their life, you forgive them, you want them to be your child. God, for those of us who've experienced this already, oh Lord, would you fill our mouths and would you fill our hands and fill our feet with this message of good news that would go into our workplaces when we go about our everyday life. It would go into our neighborhoods. It would go into our families. It would go into the path of whoever you might place in front of us, Lord. I pray that they would not just hear, but they would feel this good news because you are working in and through us. All for your glory, God, I pray through Christ. Amen.